Welcome to the VHA Innovation Ecosystem, a podcast from the Veterans Health Administration that focuses on all the great, innovative work driven by VA employees to improve veteran care. I'm Dr. Ryan Vega, the Director of the Fusion of Excellence Initiative and one of the hosts of today's podcast. On this episode, we'll take an in-depth look at practices created by VA employees that engage veterans to express their histories across different mediums, helping veterans acknowledge their most influential moments and begin the healing process. Veteran storytelling bridges the military-civilian divide by helping civilians, including veteran providers and caregivers, comprehend veterans' real-life experiences and how these experiences have shaped who they are in the present. This episode will feature three different ways veterans are sharing their stories. We hope it will shed light on the lives of veterans who have made an incredible sacrifice for our nation. Our first practice is My Life, My Story from Madison, Wisconsin. My Life, My Story allows veterans to share their personal and combat histories with medical professionals. The program aims to honor the stories of individuals' veterans and send a message that their lives and stories matter. It also gives providers detailed information about life events and other environmental factors that may impact clinical outcomes. Listen on for my conversation with Thor Ringler. So Thor, it's a real pleasure to have you on this afternoon. Would you mind just telling us uh, your name, your title, and what VA Medical Center you're working with? Yeah, my name is Thor Ringler. I'm a writer, editor, and I work at the William S. Middleton Memorial Veterans Hospital in Madison, Wisconsin. And Thor, can you give us the elevator pitch for your practice, My Life, My Story? Yeah, My Life, My Story is a VA program where we interview veterans about their life stories and their experiences. Uh, We have trained staff and community volunteers who interview veterans, talk to them for about 45 minutes and ask them what matters to them most and what they'd like their care team to know about them. After the interview, we write up a short story, we review it with the veteran, And when the veteran gives his or her approval, we put that short story in their medical chart, in their VA medical chart for their VA providers to read. We also print out copies of the story for the veteran to take home to share with his or her family. And your practice is one that's been gaining a lot of attention, I think, for not only its its simplicity, but its impact. What was the driver or the main problem that you were trying to solve that sort of led you down the path to My Life, My Story? I work pretty closely with a team, and uh, the the team that initially came up with the idea was a team of uh, psychiatrists here in the mental health service line here at Madison, and they were sort of flummoxed by this idea that residents who came through on psychiatric rotations were there for a year, and they at best got to see their veteran patients 12 times during that year and sometimes less. And the idea was, you know, what would be a way to for folks who are at the VA for a rotation for a year to a quick way for them to get to know more about the patients who they're caring for. And uh, so that's really where the uh, the idea came from. I was brought on with the initial pilot grant that, that funded the project here at Madison. I'm a writer as, as a background. And so I solidified the idea of how the story gets presented in the chart in terms of how long it is and how it's told and, and those types of things. So I would say, you know, the real driving aim is to just, uh, you know, make a place in the record in, in the medical chart where there's information about the vet that you wouldn't get anywhere else in the chart. As a provider, I can tell you one of the most impactful things that I can remember 
in ter- especially in my primary care clinic was we started to get pictures and what we called pocket cards of the patient. And I could click on it and just find out a little bit more. And it actually gave me an opportunity to talk to the patients, where they were from, uh, knowing if they were married. And sort of you sort of always forget about the social aspect of the history taking. We sort of glance over it. But it seems like you really were able to dive down and allow the, the veteran to sort of craft their own narrative and put out there what they wanted practitioners or providers to know about them particularly. How do you go about conducting the interview and I guess from a writer standpoint, editing that narrative in, in such a way that it's conveyed across while still capturing the veteran's words, but in an impactful way so that the receiver or the provider, whoever's reading it, really is gets a good sense in a condensed version? There's a couple of good questions sort of packed in there. Um, I think one is, you know, how do we do the interviews and how long do they last? I mean, typically our interviews last about 45 minutes to an hour. Always start them out, or I do, um, you know, with saying, you know, we, we want you to talk about what's comfortable for you to share with your VA care team. What would you feel comfortable sharing with the doctors and nurses who are working with you here at the VA? Sort of starting from that as the idea, uh, we interview vets. Those interviews can be really varied. We actually don't have a set of questions that we ask. We have topics that we cover. We generally try to touch on those topics, but we don't have set questions. And after 45 minutes, um, you know, we're left with basically 45 minutes of material, and we have to use the the writer skills that we have uh, that the you know volunteers and staff who who work with the program we have to work with that sort of raw material to edit it down into a narrative so that's basically the sort of the craft or the art of editing a, a transcript into a first person narrative the stories are told in the veteran's voice um, always in the first person and we aim for a thousand words so there is a lot of um, skill I would say in the editing of it but the the content is all you know from the veteran him or herself And what type of responses have you gotten from veterans who have participated in this practice? Overall, from the surveys that we've done, we've gotten very positive responses. Uh, Veterans see, I mean, they see a couple values to the program. One is just the chance to reflect on their life and, and think back on it, the chance to share their story with others, not only VA providers, but their family, but also the hope that having this story there will allow the providers to know more about them and connect with them more. I do have a couple of quotes here. So this is one. As long as I've been doing things with the VA, nobody has ever asked me anything about my life. There was never anybody to tell because nobody wanted to listen. This is the first time. And here's another one. Going through this process of writing my life story has helped relieve some of the pain. But more importantly, just when I thought I hadn't made an impact on anyone's life, after sharing my story with family and friends, I realized that I did. Clearly moving on on my end and sort of to segue from that, if I'm a provider, that's clearly going to have an impact on me. If I'm reading a narrative, but if I'm hearing the quotes from veterans, it sort of makes me reflect, have I taken enough time to sit down and understand the veteran's perspective or to understand their life or how my relationship as their provider is. So what are some of the comments and things you've heard from physicians or nurses about the impact this practice has had? I do have some quotes from providers too. Some of these are from, you know, unsolicited emails that we've gotten from providers who've read the stories. Some are from uh, surveys that we've done of, of Madison VA providers. And I think these give kind of a good insight into the different ways that the stories can play into clinical care. Here's a one. I get so busy and I'm so caught up with the medical concerns of my patient's care that I rarely take the time to learn about their personal lives in so much detail. 
I think it's fantastic that you are doing this. I hope that this program will continue here at the VA. And here's another quote from another VA provider. My story notes help me to understand my patients as people and the context to their illnesses. I get a sense of what is meaningful to them, and this helps to guide treatment decisions and goals of care. I couldn't agree more. Just from my own perspective, I sometimes don't spend that much time at the bedside. And when you do, you learn so much more about the patient behind the disease. And, and providers, we get sometimes so caught up and focused on curing pneumonia or treating a patient with heart failure that we forget who the patient with pneumonia or heart failure is. I think what you're talking about, Ryan, is really true. And I, I do some work as a, as a clinician, too, as a marriage and family therapist. But I know that doctors and, and other you know, medical professionals are so busy here and have so much to do at the VA. Our hope is that the stories, you know, through the time that we're able to spend with the patients, through the time that volunteers and staff here are able to spend with veterans and the one-on-one -on -one time, that we're able to condense that, you know, time and basically, you know, give it to the folks who don't have the time to help them, you know, in, in, in helping create those relationships and those connections. I'd be curious if what comes out of some of these narratives as well could play further into advanced care planning and particularly as veterans sort of move towards, you know, those later stages of life, if this really helps in sort of a narrative fashion, understand what the veteran would want in terms of not only care delivery, but a lot of veterans I find they, they just want to be at home with surrounded by friends and family. And while that's not always possible, we sort of don't ask the right questions. We say, well, you have this condition and this is what you need. And we sometimes forget and say, what do you want? And it seems as if this could really lend itself to helping us understand and actually advancing uh, the needle in terms of being more collaborative with advanced care planning. And we know the impact that has on care delivery, both from a satisfaction standpoint, a cost standpoint, but just doing the right thing for the patient. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And I, actually, I have another quote from a provider here that sort of touches on that point. Yesterday, I met with a veteran who had recently received a terminal diagnosis. He completed his My Story this week, reported it was a powerful experience, and had several copies at his bedside. We used the document not just to look back at his life, but as a way to think through what he feels is most important to do and say in his remaining time. Yeah, exactly. And I can only imagine when you have 15 minutes in an office setting and you deliver the news that a patient has a terminal illness, you really don't have a, a lot of time to explore sort of both the challenges, the barriers, the feelings, but neither does the patient. They're, they're still struggling and, and trying to grapple with everything going on. And it seems as my life, my story really provides not only the right venue, but the right time and the right place to reflect upon some things and, and to collect your thoughts maybe a little bit more concisely and allowing somebody to take that narrative and, and to spread it out. And are you seeing a lot of facilities reach out to you with interest in the practice? Are you all going out there and really promoting it or is it a, a mixture of both? It's a mixture of both, though I would say almost all the interest that we get is just organic from people who hear about the program, who tends to contact us, become local practice champions for the program. They somehow hear about it through either an article or hear about it from a friend or somehow hear about the program and then contact us to learn more. So I would say it's mostly driven by local interest at the facility at a really sort of a granular um, sort of frontline level. And what are some of the challenges or the barriers to sites implementing this type of practice? The most important thing is just to have a core team that 
believes in the program and wants to push it forward and has a lot of patience to deal with the, the different barriers that come up at individual sites. You know, one, one thing that some sites struggle with is just not having dedicated time uh, to work on the project. For, for many sites, uh, the local champion has full-time either clinical or, or other responsibilities and is doing this on top of that. That works for starting out the program, but at a certain point, when it gets to a bigger size, then the admin part of the program and and dealing with all the stories becomes more and more of a of a burden. So a problem that can happen with sites is as they go from being small to medium sized, the need to have sort of a someone helping with sort of the nuts and bolts of the program <laughs> becomes bigger. So that's one challenge that we face. You know, I think the challenges just kind of continue as as the program grows, and they're and they are also very different from site to site. The program can come out of different service lines, so different sites tend to have different issues. <laughs> but we do meet every two weeks, all the pilot sites, and have a have a group call where we try to address some of those issues and and sort of brainstorm about different solutions. How many sites right now are currently using uh, this practice? My life, my story. So we have 20 sites right now that have people trained. They range a lot from sites that are just beginning to do the program, implement it, to sites like Madison that are that are fully developed. So anything from, you know, a, a really robust program to, to sites that are just starting out with one person sort of starting the program. So a lot of variety there. And how do you envision My Life, My Story growing over the next coming months and into the next following years? I mean, I obviously hope that it continues to grow. It has been, you know, growing pretty well over the last couple of years, I would say. I hope that it grows organically, uh, led by interest at local sites and led by local champions. I, you know, I hope it, it grows in a way that, um, you know, is sustainable at each of the sites that it opts at. Uh, we try to, you know, obviously emphasize that the program can be different at different sites because uh, different sites have different needs and different ways they can use the stories and start them. So we're trying to emphasize the, the variability of, of the program and how adaptable it is to different places. Yeah, I think we see this with any of our, our diffusion efforts. Every site's different, uh, and there's always the commonalities that link us. And I think, particularly from my life, my story, it's the power of the narrative from the patient, something that we sometimes miss and don't always uh, focus on, but when we have it, can really have an impact on our ability to shape an experience for that individual, but also in how we care for that individual. And it seems like this type of practice would have some wider applicability outside of VA, but community hospitals, private sector could utilize something like this to understand their community's narrative, understand their individual's patient's narrative. I mean, I've always thought that, you know, though I'm, you know, obviously kind of ferociously dedicated to spreading this in the VA, you know, I've always thought that it would have application outside the VA in the civilian sector. Interestingly, there is a, there is a, pilot project going on using our using our protocol, our our sort of story gathering method going on at a private hospital in St. Paul right now. And they're actually piloting it on a cancer care unit there. So I will look forward to hearing back how that program goes in the next couple of months. So so I think that's starting to happen. So that's pretty exciting too. Lori, it's really been a pleasure speaking with you and, and thank you so much for sharing both that last story and some of the other comments from the veterans and providers uh, and how this practice has impacted them. Thanks so much, Ryan. Next, we will hear about Before I Die, a practice out of the Toma VA Medical Center in Wisconsin. It's an extension of the Before I Die Art Project, 
which aims to help reimagine our relationship with death and with one another by revealing longings, anxieties, joys, and struggles in a public space through walls that ask, before I die, I want to. I'll turn the podcast over to John Diadamo, the acting director of VA's Innovators Network, who will be interviewing Amanda Miki about the practice. My name is Amanda Mikey. I'm the patient-centered care coordinator at the Tilma VA in Wisconsin. I've been here since 2010. I started as the acting patient-centered care coordinator in 2015, and I just became the full-time in this role in May of 2017. So about a year I've been in this role. Oh, fantastic. Well, thanks for taking the time to join us. We're really excited to learn about all the work you're doing out there. Uh, Would you mind giving us a little bit of background on the project we're going to be chatting about today? This is for the Before I Die project, and it was originally brought to us by one of our nurse practitioners that practices here at the Toma VA, and it was originated from Candy Chain after the death of someone after Hurricane Katrina, and she went through a long period of grief and depression. So she realized how much people avoided the discussion of death, and she wanted to start a conversation. So she covered a crumbling house in the neighborhood of New Orleans with this chalk paint and then stenciled the words, before I die, I want to. So anyone walking by could pick up a piece of chalk and reflect on death and life and share their personal aspirations in public. So the next day, the wall was entirely filled, and she started to learn more about her neighbors and just became a little bit more close to them and what was important to them in their life. And now this has been created in 76 countries and it's stenciled in 38 languages and there's also been a book written about it. So this is pretty pretty neat that we're bringing it to the Toma VA now. It sounds very powerful and, and quite the opportunity to really impact the community at, at large as well. This will be mainly for our veterans, but it's also going to be for their families, the facility staff, their caregivers, and for visitors. And do you have an idea of kind of where the the wall will be placed? And and can you tell me a little bit more about the the process of how you'll be bringing this to the Toma VI? It's going to be in our center courtyard. And we currently have uh, miniature golf out there and a bunch of different places, little things for the veterans to go out there and relax. So we thought that would be a really nice place. And you can see it from different rooms from the veterans so they can look out upon it. So the material is made out of an eco-friendly compressed recycled paper. And we have an amazing interior designer here that came up with the design of it because it's not going to be an actual wall. It'll be four sides. So you can pull up a wheelchair. It's all going to be wheelchair accessible. So anyone can come up to it. He made the comment that the material was used to drop rations during World War II. And now we're going to be using it for this project. So that, that was a pretty neat thing that he brought up. You mentioned uh, this wall would be available for veterans and family members. How do you expect this to be really utilized? Will people be able to just access it at any point? Uh, it sounds like it's in a public space. Can you tell me a little bit more about how uh, kind of the plan is to be, have this utilized? The plan is during the summer, we're going to be talking to our stakeholders. Our county veteran service officers will most likely put it on our local Facebook page just to get the word out of what our plan is. Because some people they look at death as a negative. And this way, people can write down their hopes and dreams and aspirations and, you know, build our relationship with death and one one another by by sharing these things. 
So as a culture, even more importantly, as a medical care facility, individuals may struggle with with openly verbalizing, you know, their acceptance of death and dying and the whole grieving process. So writing it down, kind of make it more concrete, like a bucket list for folks. If you could tell us a little bit more about how you structured this wall to really reflect the unique experience that veterans will have at um, the Toma VA, I think that would be an excellent opportunity to learn more about what you're doing there. Well, the project will be a wheelchair and handicap accessible. In addition, the panels could be removed and taken to the bedside of the veteran. So if the veteran can't leave his room at all or her room, we could take it to them and they can participate. We're also going to have a podium right next to it that will explain it a little bit more because when you walk up to it, you may not really know what before I die means unless there's someone there to explain it. So we'll have all of that um, explained right there in our podium and we'll have handouts and the chalk there in the drawer so so folks can write, you know, at night when no one's around or during the day, weekends, holidays. So it'll be open 24-7. Wondering if you could speak a little bit about um, some of the uh, value that you've highlighted that you expect this wall to deliver to TOMA, to veterans, into the larger community as well. I think just like I explained earlier with the founder of this project, where she really wanted to start the conversation and let people understand that we're more of the same than we are different. And it can really open up some emotions and maybe connect people a little bit more to to write something down. And sometimes it's a little more concrete and a little more doable if you write something down instead of just saying, I want to do this before I die. Let's say I want to travel to Georgia before I die. Maybe if I write it down, I'm more apt to actually do that. It's a little bit of a commitment tool as well to to go out there and to explore what life has to offer. I think that is phenomenal. Absolutely. And, you know, it would be interesting that maybe folks would write down stuff on the Before I Die project that maybe they've never shared with their family before. So maybe they don't even know that they, for example, want to see the elk. And being able to write that down, we can help fulfill some of these dreams. Yeah, I think that's a great way to put it, is fulfilling those dreams. I, that's amazing. Well, it definitely sounds like you have a great team. I'd love to hear more about um, who you have on that team with you, that work group, for anyone who might listen in and be thinking about how they could start this at their own facility as well. Well, it came through our patient-centered care committee, which I, which I co-chair. So all of our folks are on that committee, and it ranges from we have the EEO manager, we have our interior designer, we have a project manager, a recreation therapy program manager, telehealth tech, our women's program manager, our whole health nurse, we have someone from Voc Rehab, and the home telehealth lead coordinator. Those were the folks that were, oh, I have an extended care RN and a social worker as well. So there are quite a few of us on the team. I, I think you have the dream team there. <laughs> right. So that that's fantastic. I have one other question that I'd love to ask. And just thinking about the, your experience so far, and I know you're still in the early stages of bringing this to life at Toma, but any kind of advice that you would offer to any other facilities or other folks who might be interested in starting this to, to help really benefit and serve veterans? To be honest, I didn't realize it was going to get as big as it is. And I feel like it's really going to expand more than, like I said, than what I thought. And I just think it's going to be a great 
conversation starter for our veterans and our staff here to really bring us all together and bring in more community members, um, I think would be great to really work as a team and really help our, our veterans out with, you know, like I said, their hopes and dreams and fears too, because they could put on there what, you know, what their fear is and we could help them, you know, with that. But I'm very excited and we have a great team and it'll be neat once it's up and running and to see how, how it's um, utilized. And once a week we'll go and we wanted it outside so the elements can wash away the chalk because no one's going to go up and wipe off what someone else wrote. And once a week we'll go and clean it up though and make sure that there's nothing inappropriate on there. But I think it, it'll be just great for our facility. Amanda, I can tell that you guys have been hard at work for this for a long time. Even the little, you know, would be such an easy to overlook component there where you're talking about wiping it off and really putting it in the element. I think that is phenomenal and really speaks volumes to the amount of work that you've put in. Thank you so much, Amanda. Well, thank you for the opportunity. I really appreciate it. Our final interview is with the nonprofit dance troupe Diablo, which explores the relationship and interaction between the human body and its architectural environment through dance. Through the Veterans Project, A Long Journey Home, Diablo uses movement as a tool to help restore veterans' physical, mental, and emotional strengths. The program helps bridge the gap between veterans and civilians. I'll once again turn the podcast over to John Diadamo, who will be interviewing Jacques Heim, the founder and artistic director of Diablo, as well as Chris Lavero, an Army veteran and Diablo performer. Hi, Chris. Hi, Jacques. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, before we even hop in, would you mind introducing yourselves for our audience? Go ahead, Chris. I am one of the uh, veteran participants in the Veterans Project with Diablo. I grew up in Oakland, California. I graduated from UC Berkeley in Peace and Conflict Studies. I'm a former Berkeley police officer, and I served in the military twice, uh, once right at the high school, and then the second time in 2001. I volunteered for a tour in Afghanistan after 9-11. I ended up getting attached to the 2nd Infantry Division out of Fort Lewis and served in Mosul for a year. And when I returned home, I had acute symptoms of PTSD and almost committed suicide. And it's been a long journey since then to find healing and peace. And I've finally done it with Diablo. And my name is Jacques Heim. I'm the uh, founder and artistic director of the company Diablo Architecture in Motion. I founded the company 25 years ago. I am not actually a dancer, was never a dancer or gymnast or acrobat, but I love movement. I love human beings. We work with structure uh, to show the relation and interaction between the human beings and the architectural environment how it is affecting us not only socially, but physically and emotionally. The Veteran Project for me has two missions. First, to focus on their healing process, you know, how we are trying to actually restore their mental, emotional, and physical strengths and the commitment to themselves. And the second mission is to create a bridge between the veterans and the civilians. I really believe that the more we can bring closer the veterans and the civilians together for the civilians to really understand who are the veterans, what they are about, who are they, the better we can help the veterans. 
And Chris, could you give us a little bit of a background on your role in involvement with the Veterans Project as well? I'm a part of the, the veterans community out here in Los Angeles and found out about it through a fellow veteran who told me about these workshops. And I'm an actor, so, you know, an actor tries to expand their skill set, learn how to sing, learn how to dance. And so I was reluctant to do this initially, and then I decided, you know, why not try something new? Why not try a new challenge? And so I went to a few of the workshops. It was like going on a, on a, on a little journey and discovering things about yourself and finding this brotherhood and the sisterhood that we once had in the military. And I just kind of fell in love with what they were doing, and I decided to volunteer to be a part of their first production, Ibuki One, The Veterans Project. It changed my life, and it's changed the lives of all the veterans who have participated in it. And what happens when you go through that process is you become a new person. You know, the idea of I can't do something is just kind of purged from your system. The result of that becomes that you realize obstacles are illusions and you, you become empowered to go through life with this new confidence and you discover this inner beauty in yourself. My role has been, you know, just to be a good team member, to be a part of the tribe, to support my fellow veterans, to be a performer and to just do whatever Jock tells me to do when he yells at me. <laughs> but you know, uh, John, if I can add to Chris, sure. my role is really try to recircuit them because when they come back for more, of course, they're being affected. So how can I actually recircuit their process, their thinking process, so they can rethink of themselves in a different way? And it's really about what we call restoration and bringing back their commitment to themselves. And so through movements, because, you know, movement is powerful. Movement is extremely very therapeutic and it helps. In a way, in the studio, we're not pretending to create a dance piece, but through movement, it's about recircuit them for them to rethink of themselves. And that's really the focus. So for me, my goal is to focus on their psyche, focus on what they need, focus on their weakness, their strengths, focus on their need, and analyze that and work on that. I'm not going to abandon them. Therefore, they're not going to abandon themselves. And I will take all the time he needs. We're not going to leave that studio until they are successful at what they are doing. And therefore, slowly, when they leave the Diablo studio, my goal is, my hope, is that they actually echo in their mind when they're really in their life, ready to abandon themselves or feeling sort of uh, weak in that moment. My hope is that suddenly they go back into what we talk about, all the exercise that we did in the Diablo studio, and suddenly it echo in their mind and they can actually use those tools to bring them back. That's my goal. I'm just really curious about your perspective on um, how this really helped to impact the community as well. So forming that community around mm. this project, the brotherhood and sisterhood mentality, and really having that tribe approach. And it's such a powerful way to bring people together in addition to improving themselves as well. You know, Jock mentioned that there's basically a twofold mission here. 
One is to provide healing catharsis for the veterans community. And the other component of Diablo's Veterans Project mission is to bridge the gap between veterans and civilians, because there is a, a huge gap. I mean, I don't need to remind anybody listening of the statistic that less than half a percent of the country serves in the military. And if you think about that, we've been at war for 15 consecutive years, fighting more than one war. Well, only half a percent of the country is involved with that. One half of one percent is taking on the entire burden of, you know, these military deployments. What we have created is a society where the rest of the country can be completely unaffected by it for the most part. So it's important to bridge that gap and help the civilian society understand who we are because I think that's been lost in the last 15 years. I just went to a workshop in Joshua Tree with Diablo that was designed to basically bridge that gap. And we had veterans and we had civilians coming together to do this work. And every one of those civilians that were participating left the workshop with a completely different perspective and understanding of who veterans are and what we go through. And because there's so many assumptions that people have about us. There's so many stereotypes that we fall in. And it's easy to, to not know because you have no way of not knowing. So what Diavolo does is it bridges that gap, whether it's doing a workshop or whether it's doing a performance piece, people will leave the workshop having a completely different perspective and understanding of who veterans are and what we, what we do and what we go through. I'm really curious. You had mentioned also about the Q&A session with the audience. How does your audience typically react to the Veterans Project? And what are some examples that you might be able to share with us? Well, I remember mm -hmm. when we went to in Washington, D.C., at the Kennedy Center. I mean, this was one of the most powerful moments. I mean, I had to, you know, really focus to really not broke apart here in front of the audience because after the audience saw the presentation uh, with the veterans and civilians, and then all the veterans came forward on stage and I introduced this Q&A. You had a moment of silence a little bit, the silence about, and here's what the best way I can describe, suddenly the civilians were saying, but wait a minute, this is now the moment where we can ask the question we always wanted to ask, but afraid to ask, because at the end of the mm -hmm. day, really, we don't really understand them. We don't know. They go to war. We forget about it. We don't understand what they go through. We don't understand them. Uh, the only thing we can understand them is through movies and war movies, and, but really, we don't know what they're going through. And then is the question. And then is the answer by the veterans. And then suddenly, this beautiful kinetic sort of energy between the veterans and the civilians start to happen. And you see that little bridge building. And you see the eyes of the civilians opening up and going, I didn't know. And now I slowly understand. What can we do for you? What can in and that is powerful. Chris, I have one last question, actually. Is there any advice that you would offer to anyone who might be considering to perform and to participate with the Veterans Project? Any words of advice you would offer them? Don't be intimidated by the dance component, because like Jack said, it's not about learning to be a dancer. It's about coming together in a tribe and learning how to move and create. And so it's for all levels, all ages, all disabilities. It doesn't matter what your background in dance is. It doesn't matter if you have any physical issues. 
it really is for everybody. And so there's no reason to be intimidated. And you're, you're going to just fall in love with the process and you're going to see yourself growing in, in all positive ways that are just going to positively impact your life. Thanks for listening to this episode of the VHA Innovation Ecosystem Podcast. We hope you learned something about VA and the work employees are doing to improve care for veterans, and we'll hope you join us again for the next episode. Until next time, 